Blammo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion with the personalities that shape it. My guest this week is the founder and CEO of Rag & Bone, Marcus Wainwright. Marcus and I discuss the origins of the brand, his obsession with photography, and how a conversation with Ralph Lauren led him to make a decision about the brand that would change it forever. Let's do it. So we're sitting here in the Rag & Bone office. Um, you're the best dad ever, says, your, says your desk. Yeah. Um, where'd you get that? Um, I got that, I think, for Father's Day last year from one of my kids. Got three kids. Can't remember which one. Three kids? Yeah. That's nice. I just uh, had a little daughter in December. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah, I'm out of the woods from the, the nappy changing and all that stuff. But uh, yeah, I've got my own set of problems now with three slightly older ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's definitely it's pretty exhausting. Um, so we were talking a little bit before um, we started recording. But you said you kind of just grew up all over the place, huh? Uh, yeah, I was. I was. My dad was a diplomat, so I was born. Uh, I was born abroad and lived abroad quite a lot. And then when I wasn't abroad, spent a little bit of time living in England at home. But the rest of the time, living at school. I lived at school when I was um, from the age of eight to eighteen. Oh wow! I was a border, full border at a boarding school. What 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 is life like that? Like, I mean, my I I have no concept of that. <laughs> but I'm just curious. That's a, that's, I don't know if we've got time for that. Um, it's, uh, it's amazing after you get over the uh, trauma of being left at school. Right. But then you become independent very quickly, and you have to, uh, you have to fend for yourself. I just, I just went when I was too young, I think. I didn't realize that until a few years ago. But, uh, again, that's probably a conversation for another day. <laughs> sure, but sure. It was, a, it was a lot of fun. Um, after I got used to it, it was, it was, you know, you grew up very independently and wearing school uniform every day. Right. And uh, I made my closest friends in that environment because we were all sort of in it together. Right. And it, was, it was good. A lot of sport. Yeah. Certain amount of academic work, but not a lot, but um, it was good. So one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on is obviously there's a range of stuff to talk about. Rag and Bone, the history of it, you know, I think for me, it's, it's really important to capture the fact that there's a lot of brands that are out there that feel like they need to pivot every single time to catch up to whatever the trend is. And people see through that. And I feel that right now we're, we're at this time and which consumers, I feel, are really frustrated with the BS of the industry and are kind of starting to re revert back to uh, I don't want to use the word safe, but I want to say things that are consistent and things that have authenticity. So I'm very, very grateful that we're getting to sit and talk about it because to me, I think that's what Rag and Bone is and what it always has been. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, what I know you started Rag and Bone in around 2002, but you know, from growing up wearing, you know, a uniform all day uh, in different boarding schools. And I mean, you've talked about how like your uniform now is like t-shirt and jeans. Was it like, do you feel like it was like, I have to not be in this sort of like sport coat lifestyle thing here? No, I, I mean, I, we didn't, I did I don't, I, I haven't really rebelled against that. I, I'm not trying to do the opposite of that. And in many ways, I've referenced that for sort of half of the philosophy of Rag and bone. I, you know, I didn't have any uh, fashion training. I didn't go to fashion school. Mm -hmm. um, so when I started sitting down trying to figure out how to make clothes and 
We started with a pair of jeans and some chinos and stuff. I didn't have anything to reference other than what I've been brought up right. with. And half of that was English tailoring, wearing, you know, we had to go to chapel and stuff at school. So I had to wear suits. And my first suits were my dad's old handmade English suits. Oh, yeah. Do you remember so, what house made them? That's one of them there. I don't, think it's got, I don't think it has a label in it. I think it was made in the late 50s. Oh, okay. And it's still in incredible condition. Yeah. And we've referenced it for a number of different things. We've, we've recreated that fabric. We've cut that fit. It's, uh, you know, it's, uh, for me, a placeholder for everything that's amazing about English authenticity and English craftsmanship, that something like that could be made so long ago and looking and and just stand the test of time and still look like you know maybe it's a few years old it's not 60 it's 60 years 60 plus years old that um Jeez. i can't quite get it on anymore it used to it used to fit me <laughs> um but english tailoring and that you know reverence for the time honored um skill and work that goes into learning how to cut something like that and learn how to sew something like that um has always influenced my perspective on what clothes should be. Right. And so when I came to America, I didn't have anything to do. And I What year did you come to America? I came in 2001. Okay. So I'm literally right before you started the company. Yeah, I came in, I came in March, May, no, May, June 2001. And I, I lasted about a month and I couldn't handle it. So I left and went. I was a diver in Mexico when I came here. It was long story. I met my wife in Mexico on the beach when I was a dive instructor and she persuaded me to move to New York and I, I stayed for about a month and a half and then I went back diving again in Indonesia. Oh my God. Um, That's fascinating. Do my sort of more advanced diving in the middle of nowhere in Indonesia and I, I stayed there for two months and then I flew back to New York on September the 11th and uh, That's probably didn't, actually, yeah. didn't actually get here. I was, in, I was about to land and had to, go oh to, my God. had to go to Chicago and um, land in Chicago. Anyway. And but yeah, when I came to start making clothes, I just pulled on what I knew, which was this English tailoring, and I tried to figure it out in New York and couldn't figure it out. I, I assumed I knew absolutely nothing. I remember going to the FIT library and looking up like sort of a fashion for dummies kind of book to try and understand what a fashion business was and how it worked, but right. knew absolutely nothing. So when I thought everything was made in China at that point. So I called some factory in Hong Kong and said, can you make me some jeans? Right. They're like, sure, the minimum is yeah, 100,000. No, well, the <laughs> minimum was 300. So I didn't, okay, I didn't understand bad. how it worked. I didn't understand that you actually made a sample and then sold it and then took orders and then made stuff. I just thought that you went to stores and sold them stuff. So I ordered 300 pairs of jeans, oh, thinking that I'd then go and sell them. And I remember them arriving in my apartment in Williamsburg and then opening the first box and they weren't right. And then having to send them all back. Luckily, the guy took them back. But, That's a pretty rare thing, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but I ended up, I mean, I've told this story a million times, I ended up in Kentucky yeah. in a factory. And the blend of understanding what was, in my view, the sort of quintessential source of American workwear there were a number of them in the old days. American-made workwear was obviously ubiquitous, but it, by, by the time I'd started, it was, there were very, very few factories left. I was in one of the oldest and one of the best. 
and I learned a lot from these ladies about how stuff should be made and how many, I mean, it was similar to the Savile Row thing, you know, they'd, they'd spent their whole lives learning to make jeans, right. as had the tailors that had made my father's handed down suits. And so Rag and Bone just organically became the fusion of those two things. My love of English craftsmanship, and then me falling in love with the sort of authenticity of American workwear, and in tandem with that, the the Japanese denim side of things, which is something I I didn't know anything about, but yeah, in the research I did on indigo and where denim came from, I fell in love with the sort of Japanese perspective um, of what quality and authenticity should be, and how that was applied to denim and pretty much everything else that they do. When was your first trip to Japan? And for for Rag and Bone. Um. I, my first trip to Japan was as Rag and Bone was starting. I, my wife was working there, and I went um, with actually the first ever sample from the garment district that I made. Wow! I picked it up and then went to the airport, and then I was trying. I remember trying it on in a miniature apartment in Japan, and it wasn't right. But that was the beginning of the very beginning of Rag and Bone. But my experience in Japan then didn't really play into the Rag and Bone. Thing I don't think on a conscious level, subconsciously, it was just the most mind-blowing place on earth, Tokyo. And right. I, I've been, and I had been to hundreds of countries. I mean, I've spent my life traveling right. all over the world, but I'd never been to Japan, and it was um, it was mind-blowing, and I still one of my favorite places to visit. Yeah, I think Japan, especially for for menswear and and retail in general, is a pretty shocking place for a lot of people and a lot of other designers and people I've talked to have always talked about how when they go to Japan, it's so eye-opening because at least from in America, there's a lot of things that you kind of just assume are going to be fine. Like, oh, we'll have a retail store. It's going to have walls. We'll have some hangers. But in Japan, that that sentence that you just said was like a three-month discussion in, inside there. Like, well, yeah, they're going to be walls, but what kind of walls and what color and what are they going to look like? And I I think people get so inspired and excited by the beauty and the and the detail that goes into every aspect of Japanese shopping. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was, I didn't shop. I mean, I've, I had never well, been the a shopper. Experiencing it, yeah. but even prior to that, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't shop for clothes. Really, I was a classic guy, just going to get stuff that I needed from Marks and Spencers or whatever it was in England. I didn't really understand fashion at all. I had hardly heard of any designer brands. I didn't really care that much. But I was blown away by the number of stores um, in Japan. I was blown away. I remember distinctly seeing in Harajuku a a line, a queue, what I called it, a queue, a line outside a store. And I didn't understand (laughs) what on earth could be in a store that would, you know, convince someone to line up. So I got in the line. and I waited for about half an hour, and I got inside, and there was almost nothing in there. There was a few T-shirts and some key rings. I now understand that mentality, obviously. Um, yeah. I wish I'd probably understood it at that point more, but I was like, this is very strange that they would wait in line for the, a key ring. I, just, I didn't understand that at all. But what I, d- I do now appreciate more than anything else about that j- Japanese mentality is just this insane focus on quality craftsmanship and authenticity they take it to the millionth degree uh-huh. and uh, my brain works a little bit like that my brain is you know i i 
constantly un unhappy with something if it's not perfect. And so in Japan, I see a lot of perfection. Yeah. And I see a, you know, a culture that drives the Japanese um, philosophy that everything should be as perfect as it could possibly be. The yeah. food, the service, everything. Um, so, we, you know, to this day, Jap Japan's been a huge influence on rag and bone. We buy a lot of Japanese fabric, not just denim, but all sorts of things. Suiting. I mean, they make s some of the best of pretty much anything. I wholeheartedly agree. I yeah. think, you know, I, uh, before I was doing this podcast, I worked at a, uh, a men's shop and we worked with tailors from Japan. We worked with tailors from Italy, um, tailors in China. And it was always interesting to see, you know, a box, a delivery come from Italy because the delivery from the Italian vendor, and I'm not making fun of anyone, but like, you know, it was packed, but it was in a box, maybe a hanger broke, invoice was written, stapled to the side can't really make out the legibility then you'd get the invoice from or then you'd get the box from the japanese vendor the cardboard was immaculate the packing was perfect the the <laughs> the packing list was stapled on the outside and on the inside it was typed in a clearly legible font i was just like this is a night and day difference yeah <laughs> you'll love it yeah um, I think one of the things I want to jump back to, you had said that you had wished you understand when you were talking about these people waiting in line for a key ring. I, I kind of want to push back a little bit on that because maybe, I think maybe sometimes this happens with, with creative directors and designers, but um, Rag and Bone to me was an I made it piece. Like, uh, like I made it as in I, I can be successful. Um, I actually met you at a GQ party in 2006, I believe. And it was, you know, a, a lot of people say don't meet your heroes because, well, I mean, from working in the music industry and stuff, I had met people who were, you know, jackballs, not, not the greatest people. But I had met you and you looked at me in the eye. You were very grateful that I was, like, so excited to meet you. And when I first got my pair of rag and bone jeans, I actually did wait in line to get them. Because where, <laughs> where? Um, I had to be honest, it was I think I want to say it was at like Scoop, like when I moved in because I I right. I came to New York in two thousand five, and I wanted to be cool and you know and being cool at the time was like wearing cool authentic denim and getting that and you know I come from the Midwest where it's not like I live in cornfields or podunk but there's a certain aspect of uh city life and for lack of a better term like metropolitanism that rag and bone was for me and you know and i think a lot of you know you think of scoop or something now and that may not be as amazing as what it once was but i think that dismisses the fact of what it was for certain people at a certain time no scoop scoop can take credit i think for launching particularly in women's the the premium denim trend. I think they they were the first exactly. major source of Earl jeans, and yeah, that's where everyone went, girls' ways. I remember getting your jean, and I was so freaking pumped because obviously, you know, you know this that little that little logo on the back pocket, but it wasn't really a logo; it was just this stitching. Yeah, and that like to me represented the fact that I made it, and I I think you know obviously your brand has you know, skyrocketed 
to, you know, I'm, I don't really care to hear the numbers, but just an astonishing amount than you getting a box in your Williamsburg apartment, right? I mean, you and your, your partner at the time blew up. And I think that there's still a large part of that that, rem- that remains, whatever you may think of people who are looking at these pieces and they are, they are more than, it's more than an article of clothing. It is a um, admission and a ticket into a better part of their life. It's, it's that's nice to hear. Obviously, I don't necessarily think I don't think of it like that. Obviously, I uh, I have never really managed to think about it. What it's like from to to look at Rag and Bone from the outside, and I'm so in it that I don't I don't fully understand, if I'm honest, why people love it so much. Mm-hmm. Um, I just know what drives me, and I know what I like, and I've just been very lucky, I guess, that people share that same view. Yeah. Um, it, it, I was making clothes for myself. That was how it started. When I, when I in, in, even in Kentucky, it wasn't to make clothes to sell. At that point, I had bought the three hundred because it was a minimum, and I thought that's eventually how I'm going to sell these jeans but I, I didn't know who I was going to sell them to I didn't know anything about any of the stores um, and even in Kentucky it was still trying to make a pair of jeans for me um, and my approach is very negative I have a very negative brain and a very negative eye and I look at something and I try and figure out what's wrong with it and I'm not happy until I can't find anything wrong with it and that drives people mad around here yeah I was going to um, say how often do you feel that you're happy with what you make very, very rarely, very rarely. Um, but that, I mean, and, and that's difficult for me, and it's difficult for some people to handle sometimes. But what it what it drives is a sort of, in so, at some points, relentless. But it it drives me to try and perfect everything. Um, the the day I mean, I've said this a few times to other people here. If I one day can go into one of our stores and not find anything wrong, I'm going to quit. And I'm going to go and live in the woods or on the beach. <laughs> um, you know, I think my my mission is to try and make pieces that I think are perfect, perfectly made, per- made of the perfect fabric. My definition of perfection goes all the way to the buttons and the labels and the depth of the pocket bag, and every single thing can drive me mad if it's not right. Yeah. Um, and I think that the, the reason people like Rag and Bone has got something to do with that. I think that clothes should be something that make you feel better about yourself, not from a sort of image that necessarily, I mean, I'm obviously happy that people attach a I made it kind of philosophy to owning a bit of Rag and Bone, but I don't think of it like that at all. I think of a, a piece of clothing as something that kind of the opposite of what fast fashion does, which is it fills a, a need and scratches an itch for, for a very short period of time. It's, it, it might look nice, but it's not very well made and it doesn't necessarily last. I mean, you can wear it a couple of times and then it doesn't feel special. Yeah. Denim for me and English tailoring, I think, instilled in me this idea that if you spent the money on something beautifully made, my dad always used to say, you get what you pay for. And if you buy a pair of jeans that's perfect, it just gives you endless pleasure because the 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 jean fits the fabric gives you a, a a feeling of just general joy this is me anyway because it 
is beautiful. The way it's made is a, is a beautiful thing. Properly made selvage denim is, is something else. The additional joy of a pair of jeans is that because of the nature of the indigo and the way it dyes the, um, the yarn, it gets better with yeah. age. So every time you put a great pair of jeans on or a great piece of clothing on, subconsciously or even consciously, you get just a little feeling of joy. When you put something that's not like that on, subconsciously you die just a little bit inside. Well, yeah. I mean, there's a shirt that I have that I've kept because of the memories and the experience that I had with it. It doesn't fit me, you know, and I've said this before on other podcasts that I have a very unusual amount of clothing. Um, and my wife is not wild about it, which is great. But, you know, but I've told her and she's been okay with this, that these are my baseball cards. These, you know, I I collect some of these things because, and, you know, I remember the first time I went on tour and I have those clothes and I have, you know, I have my rag and bone jeans. I have my first pair of Dior jeans. I have all of these things because I, and I feel like clothing is to me, might be one of the only things that's done that because it's it's a a a physical memory um and i don't know anything else like that yeah i mean i I mean clothing just is i mean it just is a huge part of everyone's identity yeah particularly now maybe more than ever before (laughs) which is a different conversation but you know i i think that when i put when i put on a you know i was when I was eight, 17, my grandmother paid for my, my first ever Savile Row suit. Do you remember where that was made? That was made at Kilgore, French. And, it was called Kilgore, French and Stanbury. Now it's called Kilgore. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just a beautiful, A, it was a beautiful experience having it done and getting it fitted and picking the fabric. But then every time I put it on for the years that I wore it, I still have it somewhere downstairs. I felt good. I felt like the... Hundreds of years of combined accumulated apprenticeship from tailor to tailor to tailor, cutter to cutter to cutter. I could feel that in the garment. Yeah. And when I got to Kentucky, I could see how that was getting into our genes. I could see that these ladies had been doing maybe sometimes some of them the same operation, like the same inseam or the same yoke or whatever it was, for 50 years. I could see that skill and that time honored craftsmanship going into the clothes and I could they weren't perfect they weren't sort of mass manufactured perfection they were handmade and I could feel that in the clothes most people well I don't know about most but a lot of people don't necessarily care about that they want just a nice looking pair of jeans or a nice looking shirt or jacket for me the story behind it and the thought that had gone into it was almost more important than the piece of clothing itself and so when you combine for me that that environment making those clothes with those people making the clothes, you combine the denim or whatever fabric it was and the history behind that. And if you'd spent it for me, if I had spent enough time thinking about the design of the button, the shape of the pocket bag, the color of the thread, the packaging, every single aspect of it, my, the pursuit of perfection for me was that it was trying to nail every single thing down to the stitches per inch on the inseam. I mean, I, I was really anal. I didn't have anything else to do. So this is all I did with my time. (laughs) I just constantly reworked and reworked it. And we probably made like 60 samples in Kentucky before we actually sold something. 
Do you feel that your definition of perfection has evolved the more you've learned about the craft? No, not really. I mean, it's hard to do that, very hard to do that with the, size, with the amount of clothes that we make. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still, if I go into Rag and Bone, will only buy something of ours if I feel like we nailed it. I won't wear it and if, if I don't. Does that, I wonder if that gets like tacked on like the, your production boards. Like, Marcus actually wanted to buy this. Yeah, no, I just went to the store this morning in this fucking jacket that I, that I was really excited about. There's something r- slightly wrong with the shape of the collar. And I'm like, guys, <laughs> this isn't... It's happened before, so I was like, we, we need to talk about the shape of this collar because other than that, it's perfect. Interesting. Um, but yeah, that's why, uh, you know... My production guy gets angry at me because I use re-re zips instead of YKK and they're five times the price. Yeah, I was going like... to say, slightly more expensive. I carry a lot of things with me in my day-to-day life. Headphones, a notebook, my laptop, the usual stuff. All of it's stuffed inside my tumble-weathered tote from Frank Clegg Weatherworks. A family-owned business, Frank Clegg has been handcrafting leather briefcases, travel luggage, totes, and accessories for over 45 years. Frank Clegg Weatherworks uses custom vegetable tan leathers, solid brass hardware, and time-tested techniques to provide an exceptional product of heirloom quality and timeless design. Look, they'll even work with you on the design. I don't know anyone who can do it like the Clegg family. Best of all, it's made right here in the USA. I've owned my leather tote for years and it's broken in beautifully. It's a perfect mix of ruggedness and elegance that I can carry when I'm wearing a suit or when I'm just wearing jeans and a t-shirt. Right now, Frank Clegg is offering Blamo listeners 10% off their first purchase. Go to frankclegleatherworks.com and use promo code BLAMO at checkout. These guys don't go on sale here. They're not doing this for anyone else. So take advantage and upgrade your bag or weather accessory today. That's frankclegleatherworks.com. Frank, C-L-E-G-G, weatherworks.com. And use promo code BLAMO at checkout for 10% off your first order. But I think to, to, to jump on that, I think that stands out. And I think that's also why you're a business that has been around for 16 years now because I feel that there are other brands and I'm not here to rip on anyone else, but there are other brands who wouldn't make that decision who would say, no, let's use the cheaper zippers because we can get more money now to give back to our investors or to, you know, to be cool. And and I think, you know, rag and bone, at least for me, I don't ever remember going into any of your stores and wanting to buy a rag and bone t-shirt that said rag and bone on it really, really big and covered in labels so then I could leave to tell everyone that I was wearing the rag and bone t-shirt covered in rag and bone it was yeah you know and I think that that has served you well because there are other brands who are doing that and I you know respectfully don't like them at all (laughs) because I because for me and I think a lot of other people now too especially when we're discussing fast fashion it's you want to find authenticity. And I don't know if there's something that's authentic when a year ago that creative director might have publicly ripped on it and next thing you know, he's making it and wearing it. That's yeah. bad. No, it's a, it's a, it's a big li- li- dilemma. I think that, the, it, I guess we're talking about men's prior, yes. you know, as opposed to women's. Obviously, there's a bit of a difference between the two. Sure. But a trend, you know, I think the great thing about Rag & Bone is it's... it's at its heart, always going to be the same. It's always going to stand for what it stands for. It's always going to have come from this very genuine place about what clothing should stand for. Mm-hmm. 
there is a reality to the fact that trends do change. Sure. Um, you know, if I look at my first ever pair of jeans, it was it was almost boot cut. <laughs> yeah. And now I'm wearing like you know they're peg jeans. They're, they're, I mean that's not necessarily a that for me isn't isn't a um, trend thing. It's just a change of t- my taste. Of course. In terms of the printed t-shirts, yeah, I was dead against printed t-shirts for many many years. Um, we did one once, and we have a we have a couple, but with rag and bone, it was just crossed out. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's 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 difficult when if if the if there's a major sea change in how people perceive fashion, you can choose to completely ignore it, or mm-hmm. you can choose to do it in your own way, and I think that's the very fine line that any any company I agree um, balances at the moment. I think the people that just chase the tra- chase the trend are going to get into real real trouble. Mm. But if they have, that, with that said, if they have a very solid core to who they are, it's probably okay for them to chase a trend. As long as you can still go to Rag and & Bone and get the perfect white t-shirt, get the perfect piece of clothing. It's the brands that stop offering that kind of thing and stop thinking about it the way they used to think about oh, what they did. That, that, I think, is the danger. Yeah. Um, We've been lucky in that Rag and Bone wasn't a manufactured concept. Like, I accidentally ended up in Kentucky. <laughs> um, I did go to boarding school. I did grow up with English tailoring. Right. I didn't come from fashion school and go, you know what? An amazing concept for a fashion brand would be mixing English tailoring with American workwear and we'll mash it all up in New York and it'll be this thing. It didn't happen like that. It was just, that's just what it was. Mm. It just, I did not know how to draw. I didn't know what fashion was. I didn't know anything about it. So I just, that's just what it became. Yeah. And I think the reason we've been okay through the ups and downs is that we've always stuck with that. Right. It's uh, clothing has to make people feel better. You have to be able to put something on and feel great. Um, And you have to be able to give someone a t-shirt where they open their drawer in the morning of the 500 t-shirts that they have. (laughs) One of those top five has got to be a rag and bone T-shirt. Right. So that's how we started designing T-shirts. I used to open my drawer, and I, for some reason, I realized one day I just I only really wear five or six of these. I've got fucking hundreds of these things, <laughs> and I only wear five or six. So I sat down and started to figure out what it was about those five or six. Some of them, like you said, were linked to a point in time. Right. You know that. You know maybe I was my first date. I was wearing this T-shirt with my wife. I was wearing this T-shirt, or maybe. I wore this when I came to America, or I, something specific had happened while wearing this T-shirt. Sure. But that wasn't all of them. The rest of them were like, you know, actually, this is my favorite fabric. This one's got the best neckline. This one, the sleeve is just the right length. This right. one, the sleeve is a, you know, maybe this is a champion T-shirt, and it speaks to me from an authenticity point of view, but the armhole's so high cut, I can't actually <laughs> wear it. So... In designing, the, in designing our T-shirts, I just sit down and designing everything. I sit down and try and take everything that I love about a T-shirt and everything I don't like, love about a T-shirt and try and combine it into one and eliminate all the things that irritate me about a T-shirt. Right. So... I mean, the T-shirt you're wearing now has a, has a nice sort of uh, uh, boxy, anti-fit type thing. And I feel... I actually, I'm not going to lie to you. I feel embarrassed that I used anti-fit because I feel like that's such a trite term. But I don't know how to describe something that is just natural. 
you know, what do you say, natural fit? I don't even know what the hell I'm I talking about. I don't even about. know. It's just a T-shirt. <laughs> but it's, it's, I, you know, I have this conversation with my design team on a regular basis. It's difficult, particularly with young designers. You know, they come out of school and they're like, fashion, let's do some fashion. <laughs> and I like, actually just design a T-shirt. That's fucking difficult. And yes. And spend that much time, you spend all this time thinking about like, What's going to get an editorial image? Just sit, spend that much time in a T-shirt because actually one of the hardest things in the world to design is a T-shirt. It's a weird thing to say. A jean is way harder, but it's also one of the hardest things to design even though you can't actually design it. You mm. can't change the fact that it has a scoop front pocket and a yoke and a back pocket. You can't really fuck with that. That's kind of sacred. Yeah. With that said, the rest of the stuff that goes into a gene is so complicated and so difficult to ach- achieve perfection with that it's incredibly difficult to do. It's the same with tailoring. It's, you can't fuck with, a cha- with it. You can mess around with the lapels a little bit, but that's all you can do. You can't change it much. Yeah. Getting it to fit right, getting the balance right, that's, for me, as important as a, a, a job as a, of a designer as coming up with something completely from scratch. Because... Taking something that's timeless and essentially perfect conceptually and making it in reality perfect for the present day, that's, that's the job of, that's half the job of a designer here at Rag and Bone anyway. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I just, there's, there's a lot of honor in designing a t-shirt. I think they come out of school going, yeah, it's just a t-shirt. It's not. You can get a t-shirt horribly wrong. I definitely <laughs> agree. I have quite a few of them in my drawer. Yeah. Um, one of the things that, you know, you had mentioned is you, when you were talking about like working with some of your designers, um, was there anyone that was doing that with you in terms of like maybe mentoring you or was there anyone that you were able to call in the middle of the night when you're like, am I doing the right thing? Like, who was that person in your life? From design or maybe just where, where was your North star? I mean, at the beginning, my wife was, you know, my fit model for women's and she, you know, she would not comment much, but tell me if I look stupid in something. Um, yeah. From a business perspective, Andrew Rosen, who's our one of our partners, or you know, been my partner for a very long since two thousand and six. He's mm-hmm. been the north star um, in many, many ways from a business perspective, getting us to understand what was real and what was not real in our sort of imaginary <laughs> world that we'd created around ourselves. Um, He's been the person to go to for advice and who's kept us on the straight and narrow as a business. Mm. From a design point of view, I've never, I've never had anyone Interesting. that I've listened to um, on that front. I, I know what I like and I know what I don't like and I'm able to say it and I, I, can't, be swir- I can't be steered. Right. Um, one of the other things is, so you know, I was talking to you a little bit earlier about how like, when I met you, it blew my mind. I remember meeting you. I was like, oh, my God, there he is. And, you know, this was 12 years ago. Um, you know, are, there, are you aware or are you involved in any sort of mentorship type things indirectly or directly amongst? Because I would say there's a lot of people who want to be the next rag and bone. Maybe they're going to be your colleagues, employees, who knows. But I think that what you did, um, and this is one of the reasons why I do this podcast, is really inspiring because like you were saying, you didn't have formal training. You didn't have, obviously talent is a very important thing that I think people forget about, but 
I think what you did in terms of this sort of like, you know, for lack of a better term, this like maverick trailblazer of doing their own brand while just having a guiding principle of being authentic is a very lofty thing. And I think that some people feel that maybe they can do it. Um, but I think, you know, sometimes in these stories and also for the sake of time, we're not able to get through all the things that made you question whether or not you should have done it, you know, or, or how difficult it is. So my long-winded question here I'm asking is, um, what sort of, you know, advice are you directly or even indirectly giving to people who are wanting to start their own brand? Well, it's a long, long answer to the question, probably. I mean, I, I've been, we were lucky enough to be part of the CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund mm -hmm. in 2006. Um, we had as a, Andrew was Andrew Rosen as a mentor, essentially at that point, we didn't win that fashion fund thing, which I'm still slightly bitter about. But, uh, <laughs> I think you're doing okay. We, <laughs> we asked, we asked a lot of people for advice. Yeah. You know, I remember I told this story on Monday night, but I remember calling Anna Wintour after, after the, we came out of that fashion fund. And asking for a favor, and I, you know, we we called and said, "Can you introduce us to Ralph, right, Lauren?" We were like really fucking nervous. Went and saw Ralph, and just said, "Like, what's the one bit of advice you would give us?" And we did that with multiple different people, and we didn't always listen to it, um, but we asked for a lot of advice, and it helped us a lot. And being part of that fashion fund and having Anna as a, you know, not a mentor but as a supporter was hugely impactful in those days for us. And then in turn, you know, a few years ago, David and I were asked to go onto the judging panel of the CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund. Prior to that, we had given a few various people advice, but in that process, we were asked for advice from a lot of different people. Mm. And the answer, quite honestly, is just always the same. It's not that complicated. <laughs> Fashion is a business, eh? And I think mm -hmm. the reason we were successful is we had an idea that was genuine and all that good stuff. But we sure. also had a, a, you know, an understanding that fashion was about the balance between art and commerce. Mm. Unless you're incredibly wealthy, you can't just afford to sp spank money all day long on an idea and, unless it's actually going to sell or people are going to want it. Because if you want to make five pairs of jeans, you need to sell those five pairs of jeans so you can make the next ten pairs of jeans. That's how you grow. <laughs> if you're going to spend all that money on five pairs of jeans that are just conceptually amazing, but no one's going to buy them. You're not going to, it's what's the point. Um, if no one's going to wear the product, you're wasting your time. This is my perspective. No, this is fine. Yeah. Um, I have a utmost respect for the conceptual side of fashion. And I think that's great. I just, from, a, I just don't understand how they do it. <laughs> and from my, from my point of view, you know, I, I do want to see that what I'm doing is resonating with people and that they're, you know, they, they appreciate it and then they're going to buy it. I mean, that's the point at right. this point, uh, at this point of, of Rag and Bone as a business that you've got to balance the art and the, the adherence to the, you know, the core tenets of the brand and you can never let that go. But at the same time, you've got to be creating stuff that people want. I mean, and my advice to people is kind of along those lines. Fashion's not that obvious. I mean, sorry, not that complicated. Right. You've got to look out at the world and go, I'm passionate about X. And I see that what I want is not out in the world. It's, is someone, make, when, I, when we started, I may had to make jeans because I couldn't find the jeans that I wanted. It sounds like a cliche, 
But that was the problem. I could not find jeans that I liked. Right. So I made them myself. And that, in, in, in the core of it is what the clothing business is about. <laughs> if you go and do something that 500 other people are already doing, then it's probably not going to work. So my advice for people is to do something first that you're completely and utterly passionate about. So when it's completely miserable and awful, <laughs> you're still going to want to do it. And secondly, just make sure that you understand what it is you're doing and how it relates to other people and that they do appreciate what you're doing. Because if you can do that, if you can cut through the noise and make a product that people like, people find good product. That's true. People, it will sell. Yeah. If people like it, it's just, it's an innate human thing. If you see something that you love, you want Yeah, cream to rises to the top, yeah. for sure. And it's the same in any business. Toothbrushes. <laughs> whatever you want to call it. It's like, you have, like, you go to the supermarket, you have probably 200 toothbrushes. Yeah. You pick the one that you like. I that's, do, anyway. <laughs> no, that's very true. Um, uh, I'm curious, what did Ralph say to you? When you talked to them? Ralph said, open a store. He said, open a store, because no one will ever understand your brand unless you open a store. So we opened a store. <laughs> well, um, there you go. I mean, this was from the master. You know, this is a... And this was brand advice we were getting rather than business advice. I mean, the, the, if you, the, the one person who is, in my mind, defined building a brand... And a brand that it was, you know, it was from his mind as opposed to it being a, sure. a, an organic brand it was Ralph. And he's just so, he's stuck to it through thick and thin and he's, he believes wholeheartedly in it. And he's created that world. He created a world that people bought into, that people aspired to be part of. And we were a completely wholesale business. We didn't have any retail and we were having these problems with like Rag and Bone being very quiet. You know, mm. it's not, like, like you said, it's not branded all over it. And it did really, really well when we were given the freedom to build a little world around it, to put it in some context. And it didn't really do very well when it was in the middle of a sort of sea of clothes on a sort of silver rack. Yeah, it's so, hard to tell your story in a department yeah, store so at times. It's hard. Yeah. So we, uh, we opened a store. Nice. That's the, there's a note from him in here somewhere. I don't know where it is. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it was on the well, shelf. We can, we can look we'll at it later. It. <laughs> yeah, I had it framed. Ralph, he's the man. Are you, are you aware that you may be Ralph to someone else? Um, no, not really. I mean, I, I'll just, I'm just letting you know you are. You are to a lot of people. And I think that's, that's sometimes, you know, in these podcasts and things like that too, people, you don't realize how important your story is and your advice are to other people. And I think. Oh, I see what you mean from an advice point of view. Well, and also from an achievement perspective. Good Lord, you got three floors in this building and you've been a brand for 16 years. And, you know, obviously every company has ups and downs, but you're still here. I mean, yeah. and you're, you know, and if, from what it sounds like, you like your product. There's a lot of designers who are just like, oh, my brand sucks, or they can't even use their name anymore. Yeah, that's sad. Um, <laughs> of course it is. And, I, and I'm not trying to get you to lament about you know these things but i think it's more of the achievement of what you've done and how i you know i honestly think you're you're still doing a fantastic thing yeah i mean i i, I don't really know i um 
Again, my, I don't understand really how my own brain works. I don't think of it <laughs> like okay. positively that much. I mean, I just I'm constantly that's all right looking for what's wrong. My glass is half full over here. Yeah, <laughs> and that's that's served me well. It has it sure. has its repercussions, but it served me well because you, if you can't really rest on your laurels in this business, it's a br- brutal business, the fashion business. I agree. And uh, you've got you've always got to constantly strive to be better. Yeah, You can't just sit around and wait for people to walk in your door and go, can I buy loads of your stuff? You've got to work at it. You know, times change, people change, buying habits change, the world changes, fashion changes. Right. Everything changes now more than ever. Like the whole fashion system seems to have come to a yeah. screeching halt and is going off in a different direction, which is terrifying for some and is going to make it very difficult for the people that think the old way. Um, and I think the the companies that have the the balls, quite frankly, to shift direction of the way they think about how they talk to their customers and stuff mm-hmm. like that. They're the ones that are going to succeed and the ones that just rest on their laurels and yeah, just carry on doing what they're doing. I mean, you, from a, I'm talking about from a communication standpoint, sure, marketing standpoint. Uh, I want to jump to hobbies here because we, we have just a little bit of time left. The reason why is I know that you're a, a massive Leica fan and a massive photography fan, specifically Leica Monochrome, which is uh, that that's like it's like you ask them, someone if they're into watches and they say, "Oh yeah, Patek Philippe." <laughs> like monochromes are the grail and the greatest cameras of all time. And I'll quickly explain for people who don't know what they are: they only shoot in black and white. Yeah. Why? Why do you? What attracted you to Leica? And this is, by the way, I don't work for Leica, but I'm, I'm no. very curious. Uh, Leica, for me, has achieved perfection. Um, Leica is a, uh, I mean, I, I've always taken photographs. My dad was a very keen amateur photographer, and my whole life is documented in photograph albums. So I grew up not taking pictures myself, but I grew up around cameras. But, and I'd never seen a Leica before. And I think, I, I don't know if I saw it in a magazine. I think I saw it in a free and easy uh, magazine and I went oh, to the Japanese magazine. Yeah, and I went yeah. to Adorama to have a look at it. I picked this thing up and I was like, "Fucking hell, this is this <laughs> it's a is weapon. amazing." <laughs> yeah. um, and for me, it personifies everything that I believe a product should personify. It's just the ruthless pursuit of authenticity, craftsmanship, and perfection in an object or a tool. Like it's designed simply to do a job it's there's no aesthetic consideration at all it's not supposed to look pretty isn't there's no ergonomic factor to it other than just a pure purely practical one Mm -hmm. and it's a quite german way of of looking at a product extremely and (laughs) yeah which i love and i fell in love with just the for me it's it's just it's i can't fault it and uh on top of that it just it's the best glass the best lenses you can possibly buy agreed and a camera that i know i will be able to give to my kids and they'll be able to give to their kids it'll just last it's just indestructible and for me it's one of the finest objects that's ever been designed um so to be able to work with them on a camera oh that's right yeah you you made a well you did like a leica together we did a leica together um and it was a lot of fun and uh it was pretty difficult because i could you know like i just said it was it was almost perfect it was pretty perfect um in my mind just like that red dot 
Yeah, I couldn't really, ch- I couldn't change the design. There was nothing about it. I changed a few details on it, which I do think made it slightly better. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the finish and stuff. But it was just an honor to be able to even touch something like that. And uh, How often do you shoot? I go through phases. I go through sort of months at a time carrying a camera all the time. Mm-hmm. And then... The problem with my job is it's so I'm so busy that if I take a lot of photographs, I don't have time to look at them. Mm. So I have to, I have to, I have to go through. I have to take breaks. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I haven't taken any pictures for about a month, um, but I carried the mon- monochrome, the one that we did the prototype around constantly. It was fun. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, there are a few objects like that on Earth, and I think. Most of them are collected by the Japanese, funnily enough. Yeah, um, I think the biggest Leica collection is owned by the guy who does Real McCoys. I, I could be wrong, but I know that he has a warehouse, and he also has a part of the warehouse that is devoted to uh, not film cameras, but just film. Really? Packets of film. Yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's got, I mean, this massive warehouse filled with, you know, what, sixty, two hundred thousand dollar Leicas now and army, you know, film that uh shows up. I, f- I forget the photographer's name, I'm sure someone will tweet at me when this happens, but uh uh who would take pictures of um you know the, what the military uh film that they would use and where anything that wasn't actually green would or excuse me, anything that was green would pop up red. Infrared. Yeah. 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 Pretty fantastic stuff. Anyway. No, good. I have a little collection of Leicas. I collect three things at the moment. One is watches, one is cameras, and one is lighters. I don't know why I collect lighters, but they're the, they, they're the same thing. They're perfect, these Dunhill lighters. Yeah, oh, Dunhill lighters. There you go. Watches, yeah. how many watches do you have? <sighs> how many watches do I have? I don't know, about 20? 20? Yeah. I mean, you're wearing I, some, some form of a Submariner right now. I don't know if that's a... Sea dweller, double red underline. Well, I'm not a, sure. That's a, that's a pretty simple old sub, but it's. Uh, I haven't bought one for a while. I got to a point where like I can't really justify any more watches. But it's me, dangerous the, for me. The the oyster case is is again sort of perfection. Yeah. You can't. Someone asked me recently about designing a watch, and I don't know if it's a good idea because I don't know if you can get any better than that. Um, I think I think yeah, it's, hard, it's pretty very hard, very difficult. Yeah, they you know I have a few watches that are kind of novelty for me, but at the end of the day, yeah, I usually put on a sub and that's kind of it. And move on. Uh, anyway, we're about to wrap up. But is there any other stuff that you'd like to add or mention before we we wrap up here? It's a, it's an honor to be asked. Yeah, of course. Questions. No, onwards and upwards. Well, that's Marcus. It was a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. We'll see ya. You've been listening to Blamo. Our theme music is by Tan Lines. If you like this episode, there's tons more to listen to at blamopod.com. Listen to Blamo on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. While you're at it, tell a friend and leave a review. It helps what others discover the show. Follow us on Instagram at blamopodcast or send us an email at info at blamopod.com. Still want to connect? Join our newly launched Slack group and chat with other friends of the pod. Thanks again for listening. See you all next week.